Hello and welcome to Geek Warning. This episode is actually just me, Dave Rome, uh, as Kaylee and Ronan are away in Belgium. Wait, wait, hold on, Dave. Wait, hold what? on. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm late. I'm late. I'm late. I'm, I arrived a little late. Wait, what I miss? Whoa, James. Hey. Who's... Hi, Dave. Who's that next to you? Uh, this is Zach. Zach oh. from, from Boulder Gruppetto. Zach from Gruppetto. Zach Edwards. Hello. Is this your first podcast? It is. Oh, I think. welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Geek Warning. His, his, I had to argue with his boss a little bit. I did have to get him to, you know, have him, I did have to argue to get him to take a break from his, from his sweeping and taking out the garbage duties. I mean, he is mm-hmm. a, just kind of a junior intern mechanic here. That's but true. Sure. I All did right. carve out well, a few minutes of his time. I guess then we do have a team. It's not just me. We do. This feels oddly familiar, Dave. Mm. James, what do we have on for today? <laughs> We've got a whole bunch of tech news to discuss today, including a bunch of new road and gravel bikes. We've got a new carbon factory from Time Bicycles. We got an intriguing development from our friends at Classified, and some rather unfortunate and troubling news from Jiro and Bell. Uh, Dave, I don't know if you're prepared. We may or may not have a dirty, dirty Dave to discuss, mm. and maybe a PSA. We'll see. Um, I should warn everyone listening to this show, however, that we uh, are not today going to discuss, uh, we're not going to do a super geeky deep dive on the Flanders pits, however, because uh, Ronan's already put out a couple of really nerdy galleries from Belgium that are now up on escapecollective.cc, so you should go and check those out right now. More importantly, please sign up as a member for the Escape Collective, since we are a member-driven and funded publication, and... As it turns out, it is your dollars slash euros or pounds or whatever currency you use, uh, which is how we pay for everything here. Uh, Dave, what do members get when they sign up for Escape Collective? Well, first and foremost, you're supporting independent journalism. Because this uh, is how we get paid. This Exactly. I mean, yeah, we're, we're, I'd like to think we're professionals at what we do, uh, but this is our profession to give... Uh, an independent voice to the bicycle industry and to give honest opinions based on experience on the products that we handle and to make sure that people aren't wasting their money on uh, products that aren't worth owning. Uh, But yeah, beyond that, there's a a whole community behind Escape Collective. So your membership also gets you access to our Discord channel and the thousands of people there that... uh, uh, very busy, actually, uh, discussing all forms of, of cycling and, and not cycling. Uh, you also get access on the site to our comments. So that is another thing that gets you behind uh, the paywall along with the content. So um, Members also get access to our uh, not infrequent live podcast recording sessions. We're going to do a live tech podcast next week, actually. Yeah, so I think uh, the Ask a Wrench segment uh is going to be a sort of a live q a moving forward which uh is quite fun we're gonna need a jingle for ask a wrench Mm. we'll work on that yeah yeah i've got some ideas there that could be quite fun (laughs) okay well (laughs) with that shameless self-promotion out of the way uh shall we get into the news sure all right well first and foremost dave i'm gonna hand this one over to you uh Mm -hmm. rocky mountain has a new gravel bike. Actually, it has a family of new gravel bikes. What are we looking at here? Yeah, so Rocky Mountain, a, a brand, a Canadian brand, best really known for their mountain bikes. I mean, they're they're one of the more hardcore mountain bike brands in, in the world. Um, they've been around for a long time as well, to the point that their website is just bikes.com, which I love. Uh, Brilliant. And so good. Yeah. Uh, they have gotten into gravel. So, like, they've got a, a new gravel bike called the Solo, and... 
in many ways it it looks like uh just a very sensible gravel bike there's nothing truly revolutionary here but it does tick a lot of boxes so there's room for 700 by 50 mil tires there you can run two chain rings on the front of it uh there's lots of mounts as you'd expect uh it's using that new SRAM udh hanger so you could fit that new transmission stuff on it if you so please but it you know at the same time you can fit any other drivetrain on it and then geometry wise it's it's like uh what you'd expect of a mountain bike company it's got that slightly longer front center uh designed to be used with a shorter stem head angle's not super slack on it it's like around that 70 to 71 degree from memory depending on the size um but yeah overall I, i'd say it's a it's a pretty good first effort um well although to, you're to be telling clear, it, yeah this is not rocky mountains first gravel bike it's the first time they've done a carbon gravel bike. So they are kind <laughs> of expanding their range here. Yep. Um, but I, I do think it says a lot about where Rocky Mountain thinks gravel is going to be. Or I guess it's, it's probably a good uh, bit of confirmation that even a company like Rocky Mountain thinks yep. that gravel is here to stay. Yep. And is and is relevant to their, I guess, their current customers as well, right? Like that, there's enough mountain bikers taking up into gravel now that they've they've really invested in the segment. So, yeah, I mean, it's not their first gravel bike, but in my mind, it was because I guess they weren't, they almost weren't relevant to me uh, in the gravel space before that. I really did see them as a mountain bike brand. Uh, but yeah, they've this new solo. Um, Carbon bikes start from three thousand eight hundred US, and alloy versions start from seventeen hundred. So, yeah, it's not. Uh, it's in the affordable space, which is is cool to see. Yeah, and I think I don't know. My my guess is that just knowing what we already know about how much crossover there is between, uh, particularly like cross country slash trail uh, categories of mountain biking and gravel, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it makes sense. I think that Rocky Mountain would kind of expand their their gravel offerings or kind of like dive deeper into there absolutely and yeah i mean that's not an isolated incident right like that we've seen that from other what you'd deem hardcore mountain bike brands like evil comes to mind with their with the chamois hager uh you know and santa cruz for example they've also had it long had a gravel bike so i mean it's it's definitely this trend of of mountain bike brands playing in the drop bar space from a different perspective i think too like not necessarily just trying to go after mountain bikers and sell them gravel bikes. I think there are a lot of bike shops that are not a Trek or a Specialized or a Giant dealer that Rocky Mountain is one of their brands that they have like, I don't know, five or 10 small brands, but that just is a nice, another bike option that they have to sell yep. rather than just being like, oh, well, they only make mountain bikes. Yeah. So. And it's and it's a gateway, right? Like if you imagine that a lot of road riders are finding gravel, and enjoying the off-road segment there and then are getting into mountain biking, it makes sense for these mountain bike brands to put themselves out there to that market as well, to introduce themselves to customers at that touch point. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like Rafa's a very good example of how they've managed that, right? Like they, they've they got uh, a lo- a very large customer base of, of hardcore road cyclists, but as they find themselves into gravel or even mountain bike, I mean, Rafa now has that product to to keep them dressed. So it's... Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's quite interesting to see just these brands playing in segments we don't associate them with, and uh, I'm all for it. I mean, yeah, and, and I guess just one last point before we move on. I think, again, it is it is co- sort of a reminder that although 
you know, we already know that people who ride bikes, I mean, there is a tendency for people to kind of dabble in multiple sports to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's far more likely that you have cyclists dabbling in other categories of cycling as opposed to other sports altogether. Yep. Um, so, I mean, like all three of us here, we all ride pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whereas there certainly are people who only ride road or only ride mountains, so on and so yeah. forth, there's an awful lot of people who ride a lot of different bikes. So this is a good reminder of that. Dave, this Rocky Mountains, I mean, it sounds maybe not extraordinary, but it still sounds kind of interesting. I don't know. Should we get one in? I would like to. I would definitely like to. So, yeah, let's at this point, assuming they're, they're willing to put one in a box for us, let's... Uh, Let's say we'll we'll have a review on one shortly. Well, I guess we'll have to see if they'll ship one out to, to Sydney. Anyway, mm. moving on, what else do we have in the gravel bike space? There is a new gravel bike. Uh, Cannondale have a new fancy one, the Lab 71 Topstone. Uh, James, I'll, I'll let you explain what this one is. Uh, well, so the Topstone Carbon has been around for a few years now, maybe like three, I think maybe. Um, but Cannondale did redesign it last year, almost a year ago exactly, now that I think about it. Um, and they kept a whole bunch of the stuff, basically everything that I really liked about the first generation one. Um, but they got rid of all the goofy proprietary stuff that really no one was super excited about. So they got rid of the um, the asymmetrical rear end. They got rid of the custom offset crank set. They got rid of the super wide bottom bracket. Um and instead, they went to a basically a symmetrical setup as far as where everything's oriented. Um, it's a standard 142 millimeter through axle in the back, regular offset uh, crank set with a regular threaded 68 millimeter English bottom bracket. Wow, what a uh, Tire clearance has actually gone up too. It used to be 700 by 42, and now it's 700 by 45. Um, and then the way they did all this was basically how a lot of other companies were getting to this point with their carbon gravel bikes is they dropped the drive side chains day. Um, yep. so chain stain length is up just a little bit, but that's fine. It's not a big deal. But the big thing with the lab 71 version, it's the same mold as far as you can tell, uh, as the mm -hmm. regular top stone carbon, but it uses a fancier carbon layup and now it's 160 grams lighter. Mm. Um, and that should bring the claimed frame weight to, I think just below the thousand gram mark, which for a gravel bike is pretty good, especially one that has that kind of like 30 mils of pseudo suspension that it has in the back. Uh, so 160 grams lighter, but, um, how much more expensive? It's, uh, it's not cheap. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't remember what the, what a top stone carbon regular, uh, gravel frame set costs. Yeah. Uh, the lab 71 version, however, is $4,500 us. It's a lot of money, but the paint on that alone looks like it's worth a thousand dollars. Easily, easily. If not more. This is a bike that confuses me because the person that generally buys a top stone is more in the adventure segment of gravel but this one is essentially the same as that it's just lighter and usually the people that buy lighter bikes are people that are racing gravel so if you're racing why would i want this bike over the super six evo se well i think what's weird about the top stone though is it 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 does have a decent amount of mounts like this bike even though it's supposed to be a super light gravel bike it does still have like three pack mounts on the fork blades um the geometry is still kind of unusual for a gravel bike like it doesn't run the that much bottom bracket drop it's like 60 ish mil 65 millimeters i think and then the trail dimension is pretty short um and it has a pretty long front end so like the handling is actually pretty sporty um so it, it's an interesting bike like it almost seems like a kind of go fast gravel bike but it can also carry stuff it it, it is a little bit of a head scratcher and what it's sort of trying to be like it 
I, I guess it's a head scratcher in the sense that while everyone else is trying to be like super specific with their gravel models, this one is just sort of seemingly like a good all around carbon gravel bike. Mm. I think I think for me it kind of fits into that like ultra rough gravel race space, like the adventure adventure race, I guess, which is like kind of the same space where like the the Lauf Siegler is almost playing in, but this one doesn't have as much tire clearance, which I guess is where it's slightly peculiar, is it? You got like these comfort features, they sell it with front suspension in some cases. Um, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's you're limited to a 45 mil tire. So I I kind of agree with Zach on that one, which is it is a bit of an odd one, which is, yeah, why would you pick this over there, even racier version? Um, yeah, and I think like the normal Topstone, right? Like I can see that customer. That's like you just want a gravel bike that does gravel bike things. But why spend the extra money to get one that's 150 grams lighter? 160 grams. Sorry, 160 grams. 160. Like it just is like, but like that person for the Topstone doesn't necessarily like that. To me, it's like the bike and the customer aren't the same thing yeah i mean i know like gravel there's like a wide range of spectrum of things and what people do with the bikes but it's just it's just a very interesting one for me as like they have the super six gravel mm-hmm. bike already yeah i think unfortunately this is this is a case of bike industry doing bike industry things and it's it's probably not about the 160 grams weight saved it's about a special paint and the, the fact the that it's more expensive yeah right right like it's it's just merely like a i don't know it's like an s-works version of the diverge is what i'm gonna liken it to yeah i mean yeah same thing and plenty of people buy those i guess yeah yeah so it's unfortunately it's not it's not a performance purpose dare i say i do find it interesting though like it seems like i'm maybe speculating they came out the lab 71 road bike Mm -hmm. and now this is a lab 71 gravel bike it'll be interesting to see what's next and what changes if any are made like the super six gravel bike i could see that gaining internal cable routing yeah and being lighter like an even racier version of that and then i mean mountain bikes will be interesting as well so my so. understanding with the this lab 71 series is that it's dedicated to bikes that they deem worthy of racing but most importantly and, and looking at the the current two lab 71 bikes that they've got the super six and the um Super 6? Yeah, Super 6. And the now Topstone, they do seem to be reusing molds. So I don't think they're going to be using Lab 71 to add features that differentiated anything more than like weight and paint. Right. Uh, So yeah, I think it's moving forward that as they release new models, yeah, there'll be Lab 71 versions with like really fancy spec and really fancy paint and a little bit lighter layout. But I I don't think we'll see them um, separate with like, you know, entirely different front-end features or, or different frame sets. Right. And it does also bring up the question of, you know, Cannondale had said earlier at the intro of the whole Lab 71 thing, Dave, kind of like you mentioned, like the whole concept around Lab 71 is supposed to be making kind of like the best race bikes that they mm. can. Yeah. Um, and so it's not really supposed to be like ultra boutique parts. And I mean, the parts are obviously expensive, but they're all supposed to be parts that supposedly improve the performance of the bike and help people go faster on them. That, yes. like, that's the whole idea of it. Does paint make people go faster? Uh, less paint, theoretically. Weighs less. Yeah. Um, but at, at least as far as gravel goes, it does bring up the question, and I think we've discussed this before, you and I certainly over the years and whatnot. Um, it does bring up the question of what exactly constitutes fast on gravel. 
mm-hmm. just because there is such a wide range of what gravel is for different people. Like if it's kind of rough or it's kind of smooth or whatever. And I mean, Zach, obviously you and I around here, our gravel is, I mean, it's we, road bikeable. We, we could, we could use the, the, the stereotypical term of champagne gravel. Um, Cause it can be really smooth, but at the same time, when, when you head out on some more traily stuff, some more single tracky stuff, I mean, I know certainly experience in mountain bikes tells me the same thing that when you have a bike that rides smoother, you can go faster. So if you are in a situation where a lot of your gravel ride does constitute uh, terrain, that's even just a little bit bumpier. I don't see the downside of having a smoother ride, like what you'd get on the back end of something like this versus something that is lighter and or more arrow or whatever. So I think it's sort of just horses for courses and that sort of thing. Yep. For sure. Anyway, I, I'm intrigued. Candale's only selling this as a frame set. Um, like you said, uh, it's $4,500 US. Um, I, I kind of wonder, like like Ronan's been playing with the idea of an aerial gravel bike. Like he built up a, I think, was it a, was it a Damani or a checkpoint that he built up with super Might deep wheels? It's a uh, yeah. yeah, it's but the previous gen, I think. Okay. Um, if I remember. So he's building up sort of like a mild gravel bike, like mm. kind of like crazy aero. I kind of wonder how stupidly light you could go with a gravel bike that's still capable. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think there's, it's a category where you quickly run into reliability issues as soon as you actually get a light bike. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah well, it's an interesting concept. Anyway, fun one to think about. Maybe yeah. we'll toss this around too. Um, Moving on, mm. uh, moving away from the gravel space and onto road bikes, we do have a new titanium flagship road model from Lightspeed called the Spezia. Spezia? Spezia, I think. S-P-E-Z-I-A. Um, it is kind of what you'd expect from Lightspeed. It, there's an awful lot of shaping going on here. It's a mix of 325 and 64 titanium tubing. Um, it, it's There's hardly anything round on it at all, aside from like the bottom bracket shell and head tube, I think. Um, The top tube's like super rectangular. The down tube, they say, is actually kind of arrow-ish because it's sort of triangular-shaped, sort of. Um, It is impressively light, all things considered. Its claimed weight is uh, 1,120 grams for a medium frame, which is pretty good for titanium. Mm. Um, Tire clearance is really good, 35 mils. Uh, Got an optional T47 bottom bracket. You have the usual light speed stuff like in-house machine dropouts and fittings. Uh, You've got a range of anodized finish choices. It looks pretty nice. It is expensive, um, as you'd expect, but it's not outrageously so, I don't think, all things considered, of course. Um, they I are, that, that pricing doesn't look that bad to me. It, no, it's like I said, all things considered, it's not that bad. Like it's welded in the U S um, it's, uh, 8,000 us for a complete Altegra DI2 bike or 12 and a half thousand us with Shimano Dura Ace and zip three or threes. Uh, Lightspeed hasn't announced that they're going to do it as a frame only, but I'd imagine that they will. And that price is still to be determined, but this one, honestly, I think looks pretty sweet. I mean, at least on paper, I, I would definitely bring one of these in. Yeah, and like stock geometry, I assume it's uh, not not custom geometry. Uh, I mean, I don't think. Well, this as we're recording this, this frame is actually under embargo, oh. quote unquote embargo. But by the time people are listening to this thing, it will be live. Um, so based on what Lightspeed has offered with its other higher end models, I would imagine custom geometry is going to be available, mm-hmm. um, along with other like little custom bits if you want like fender mounts and stuff like that. I'd imagine they'll be able to supply all that. Um, but uh, yeah, I kind of like the idea of a higher end titanium bike. And I like that companies are still pushing the titanium thing and kind of like, you know, not just going after the sort of 
craftsmanship thing and also kind of like pushing the technology of the stuff. James, I'm going to throw you under a, a, a giant bus of speculation here. But uh, <laughs> what what is it about light speed that often allows them to lower the expected weight of titanium frames versus just about everyone else? Are they that just is a underbuilding good question. these? Or are they, you know, what, how, how are they reducing the weight compared to the normal 1,400-ish, 1,500-ish gram point that you normally see for titanium? I mean, Lightspeed didn't point this out explicitly as far as the weight savings go. Um, but one thing that they did point out is with that rectangular top tube, they are forming that out of flat 6-4 sheet. Um, and if they are doing that out of pretty thin 6-4 sheet, it could be pretty light. Um, it's all internally butted and that sort of thing. So it, the, the tube sections are, the two walls are pretty thin. Mm. Um, you know, how much that might play into the long-term durability of the thing, I don't know. Because certainly... As wall thicknesses get thinner, you do you you are more prone to denting and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't know. It kind of remains to be seen. Um, but you know, my guess is that durability is going to take a hit to some extent. I don't know how much. Uh, titanium stuff does seem to still last long, or at least hold up better long term than a lot of composite stuff. Mm. Um, and my guess is that the bike probably is going to ride awesome, but we'll see. Yeah. Zach, have you built many for many bikes from Lightspeed? I know you have your hands on other titanium bikes on on the regular, but I have built some Lightspeeds. Um, I think from the current iteration of mm. Lightspeed, the brand, I did run into some QC issues. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> good to know. I was, um, but otherwise, they seem fine. Yeah, I mean, okay. definitely more mass produced. I would say, like sure. the welds aren't quite as nice as like some of the smaller, more boutique brands. Mm -hmm. But I would say I'm still a fan of this. It sounds sweet. Titanium road bike with tire clearance for 35s. Like, yeah. I mean, I so I would say it's been winter here, so I've not ridden road bikes. And I was just on holiday where it was much warmer. And I took my road bike, which is titanium, and I hadn't ridden it in, I don't know, four or five months. And I forgot how lovely they ride. It was great. And I could travel with it and I don't have to worry about your getting dented or broken or anything. What, the paint getting scratched? Paint getting scratched. None of it. It's great. Yeah. And it costs roughly comparable to a Trek. Uh, well, maybe Zach's was a little bit more. He does have a custom mosaic. Oh, okay. It's rim brakes though, so it's cheaper. Uh, I, meant, oh, I meant the light speed, oh. but yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I am pretty excited to get my hands on one of these. I, I actually have already put in a request for a test bike. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty excited to check this one out. So um, like you said, Dave, the pricing is all things considered pretty pretty good. Yeah, wow. it was like 8000 for your Altegra bike. Yeah. Like that's great. Like that is a, a good alternative to main like mainstream brands, I think. I agree. And yeah, they're not doing any super weird cable riding up front. Like it's not fully internal. Thank God. Um, like it, it takes a lot of boxes for me, at least anyway, for a bike that I would be looking to buy to hold on to long term. Yeah, for sure. All right, I'm intrigued by that one. Okay, uh, also intriguing, moving on, sticking to the primarily road bike space here. Um, I think most people listening to this podcast will be familiar with the brand name Time, and we're talking about Time as in frames, not pedals, although for you know not too long ago, it was the same company. Um, but uh, Time actually recently changed hands, the frame company, uh, actually and the pedal company, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> time, time Bicycle has recently changed hands. Uh, it's now under ownership, uh, I guess, led by Tony Carklins, who was also running Orbea USA for God knows how long, and he also founded Allied in the U.S. Um, and Time just opened up a mass, or I guess they're about to open up a massive factory 
in South Carolina in the U.S. dedicated to carbon frame production. Um, so this is from their press release, quote, through our collaboration with Clemson University, Krauss, Maffei, and the SC Fraunhofer USA Alliance, we look to advance Time's proprietary RTM technologies to produce the most advanced carbon fiber bicycles in the industry. Uh, they also talk about how they're going to, I guess, scale up production quite a bit, or at least they're hoping to, depending on how many bikes they sell. But um, Time obviously has pretty big plans or aspirations for expansion. And I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, that it is going to be bikes that are manufactured in the U.S., but also because it... French bikes manufactured in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> Sorry, I mean, it's French, French, French history, but I mean, even uh, Time's factory in Europe now is in Slovenia, or is it Slovakia? Yeah. I can always, I always forget. They're still, they're still very French bikes, though. They are still very French. Um, but I guess the big thing with this is that Time is one of very, very few carbon bike manufacturers that continues to use resin transfer molding as a manufacturing process. Um, so like if you go to the time website, like I think right away you're, you're kind of, they, you have this video uh, auto playing in front of you that shows like their big carbon fiber braiding machines and stuff like that. So they, the way that they put the carbon together is very different. It's almost kind of like a, I don't know. It's almost kind of like a sock. Right. That um, they make hard. But the way then that they do all that, they, all that stuff is like all those fibers are woven dry and then put in the mold. And then the resin is essentially injected through all that carbon material. Um, and it's, it's a very different way of doing it. It's actually a very common way to do it in the automotive world right now for, for any of those parts that are made using carbon fiber. Um, and the big advantage of that is I mean, one, people who are proponents of RTM say that you, know, you get you know, fewer voids and fewer defects and that sort of thing. Um, but from a production standpoint, what's nice is that you don't have to refrigerate the carbon fiber since it's not pre-impregnated with resin. It's also more automated. It is. It is, for sure. So, Rather than handling pre-preg carbon. So I don't know exactly what this factory is going to look like inside, and time didn't really talk a whole lot about it. But I'm kind of imagining like a bunch of robots and stuff. Mm. It's pretty... I mean, like, yeah, the the previous, the old, the old time factory was just a a crazy number of spools that kind of looked like a, a cotton weaving factory. Yeah, and it's just carbon running everywhere, but um, strands of carbon running everywhere. But uh, this factory sounds pretty big. It's what one hundred forty thousand square foot. That's that's large. Yeah, one hundred forty thousand square feet sits on thirty acres of land. Uh, I don't know what that mm. is in in square meters, um, but it's it's a big facility for sure. Yeah. Well. And uh, yeah, should probably worth mentioning that yeah, it's in South Carolina, which uh, from my understanding is the they've got quite a few grants that have uh, allowed this to happen. So uh, yeah, sort of encouraging local manufacturing, which is done in many states across the US, but uh, yeah, it's not something you normally associate with the bike industry. So it's kind of it's kind of cool to see that sort of investment being made. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah I I, I like seeing time sort of enjoying a bit of a resurgence right now. Um, I'm certainly old enough to remember kind of the glory days of time, I guess I could say. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've never ridden a time, but anyone I know who has owned one or has spent a whole lot of time one, they always talk about the, kind of like the ride quality more, more than anything else. Um, I don't know. They seem pretty neat. I, I am, I'm optimistic to see what they come up with moving forward. I hope the new, the new factory maintains the same level of quality frames. Like that's what the issue I see here is like the previous times you pull the fork out and look inside the frame 
and they're just completely flawless. Um, where like the guy, I can't remember what his name is. I think Tony or something you said, um, coming from allied. And I would say allied frames in my experience, the QC is not quite there when you look inside the frames. So I hope that they can continue that level of quality at time while maintaining some Frenchness. What sort of Frenchness are you hoping to maintain here? I don't just like quirky, weird things. Like, because, down, like down tube storage for a baguette? Yeah, exactly. That would actually be kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep we'll keep an eye on this one. I don't know exactly when time is saying that they're going to like actually be producing frames out of this facility, but uh, it sounds like they're going to be moving pretty quick on this one. So uh, I suspect we'll find out sooner than later. Um, in, you know, Zach, you had mentioned the head scratcher thing earlier with the, with the Topstone Lab 71. And this next piece of news is definitely very head scratcher, very head scratching. Uh, so, uh, uh, most people listening to this podcast, I suspect, uh, will have heard by now of that company classified, uh, the company that's doing those two speed rear hubs, um, Dave, I know you have a fair bit of experience with the the road going version of that, and I've played with I've played around with it a little bit, and they are really cool. Just how quickly they shift between their two gears, uh, they're pretty reasonably light, and so on and so forth. Um, but now, Classified has come out with a two speed mountain bike hub. Uh, yeah, they're saying that it's a forty six it's a forty six percent ratio change between the two gears. Um, Roughly equivalent to like two to three conventional rear shifts on a on a wide range cassette. Now, um, they're saying that it can do that shift in 150 milliseconds, which is pretty quick. Uh, and they're saying the system can also do that under a load under a pedaling load of up to a thousand watts. Uh, and classified is intending for that rear hub to be paired with its own 1140 12 speed cassette. Uh, and they're saying the total range is 530 percent, which is just a hair bigger than SRAM Eagle stuff right now. Um, and then you still have a, a, a wireless shifter. Uh, it's like a ring shaped thing that, that goes on the, the left side of the bar. Um, yeah, looks a lot like, uh, they've borrowed some, um, inspiration from a company called Zerbel. They yep. do a, a similar ring shifter on yep. the mountain bike side. Exactly. Cool. Um, yeah. it's, it's not quite as expensive as I thought it would be. Uh, it's 2,700 euros for a complete carbon wheel set with the hub and a shifter, so it's not cheap, but considering you get some carbon wheels with it, it's not as bad as I thought it might be. Um, but I mean, yeah, scr scratching heads here. And we've spent all this time in the last few years ditching front derailleurs and multiple chain rings on mountain bikes. And uh, when that happened, there were all the usual arguments of like, oh, like the gaps between the gears are going to be too big and all these other things. And now one by is obviously this, the, the norm for mountain bikes. And classified is almost seeming seeming to like rewind the clock a little bit by claiming that now you can get a little bit more range, but still have tighter gears between individual individual gear shifts at back. Um, but I guess one thing that they're saying is like if you suddenly hit a climb uh, or like you know you're suddenly going down the other side or whatnot, uh, shifting in the rear they're saying is a lot faster than trying to do two or three conventional shifts out back. Um, this still feels weird like the classified two-speed road hub i think still makes sense but i don't know if i'm seeing the merits of this one yeah i feel like it's no. it's one of those like solving a problem that the problem doesn't exist mm -hmm. yeah so i mean the like the tighter 
ratios is probably the main benefit here. Whereas if say you're got, for example, Eagle 10 to 52 tooth cassette, each jump between each shift is actually quite large, which for me personally, off-road is actually what you want. You want a noticeable jump. You don't want to have to feel like you need to shift two to three gears every time you need to make a gear change. Uh, on the road though, I guess this these tighter jumps could be beneficial. For me, the biggest question I have is, it comes down to, I guess, almost the weight of the system. This is actually kind of adding weight back into the bike, not taking it away. Uh, and for me, I would want, if you're going to lose that massive, say, 10 to 52 tooth cassette, I'd want it to come with a weight saving that, you know, becomes unsprung weight and, and, and makes your suspension work better and all that. But actually, this is adding weight and it's it's actually almost heavier. It's it's a few grams heavier than like a SRAM GX system. But then it's significantly heavier than, say, XO or, or XX1 or XTR uh, for... And that's the sort of level that you'd assume that person's running if they're willing to spend 2,700 euro on this system with wheels. And I think like what's interesting to me is the only people I've ever heard really complain about the big wide range mountain bike cassettes that we have now are the people that mm -hmm. live where it's flat and they're like, I don't need this much range. So whether yeah. they'll run either older stuff where it's a smaller cassette or like run a, like a Force Explorer derailleur and cassette to kind of have a yeah. tighter range. And like those are the only people I know of that have complained about that. And those people also don't need essentially what is a front derailleur. Like, yeah. So it just like, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The, the bigger issue for me is that I thought when I heard months ago that classified working on a mountain bike system, I thought in my mind that this could be quite cool. This could be a narrow range cassette, which is significantly lighter. And then that narrow range cassette could be used with a much smaller rear derailleur, which then has added clearance it, it's less likely to get caught up by sticks it's less weight on the rear end it could actually be beneficial to mountain bikes but this is still using the same rear derailleur that you probably have on the bike currently but what, so what derailleur no would they use benefit. otherwise like they'd have to make their own rear derailleur their own mm. um which they haven't done i'm not to say they they won't do it i mean they've denied that they will at this point but i mean for me the that makes logical sense that they would eventually do that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think what's even more curious to me is that modern derailers, you look at SRAM, that derailleur is specifically designed for that cassette range that they offer, that 10 to 52 tooth. Uh, like the parallelograms basically locked into that cassette ratio. Uh, and it it's odd to me that the shifting would be as good uh, with an 11 to 40 tooth cassette, which is very different to a 10 to 52 tooth cassette. Uh, so I, I think there'd probably be a, a shifting compromise here. I haven't used it, but I'm speculating that that B gap, the, the gap between the, the upper pulley wheel and, and the, the cog is going to be pretty substantial and that's going to cause some pretty slow shifting. I mean, probably the best option would be to use the like XTR. They make a shorter cage version of the yeah. derailleur for meant for a 1045 and that's, that's going to be the closest, I would think. Yeah, and, and that's even stranger because I asked Classified, like, what redirailer do you recommend with this system? And their response was, SRAM and TRP redirailers will work best. They didn't mention Shimano, which just, Interesting. I don't know. Um, that's, that's very strange to me. Uh, I don't know whether that's like, maybe there's something weird going on there from a, a relationship point of view between them and Shimano. I mean, right, because it could be the chain too, function. like Shimano has the Hyperglide Plus 
and mm-hmm. but then Stram has their own, and then TRP also uses a KMC chain. So it's it's interesting yep. that you'd have one cassette that seemingly works with all three. Yep. Yep. So yeah. Anyway, Head uh, I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of questions that I have from this system. Um, but at the same time, I while I as James said, like we're quite sold on the idea of this on a, a road or a gravel bike. Like it makes sense there, and it has benefit there. Uh, and I will be reviewing a system soon. Uh, but it, for the mountain bike, I'm I'm left wondering why. Here's what I was kind of hoping for from Classified when when they had like you, Dave, like when they heard, when they mentioned that they were working on mountain bike stuff, I got pretty excited at what could be. Um, mm. Because to provide some background, the people who designed the hub they came from the automotive transmission world. And um, for anyone listening, uh, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here. But my understanding is that the way the Classified hub operates, it's it's very analogous to a dual clutch transmission in a car. Um, which is one of the reasons why it works so fast and which is why it's a fair bit different than a lot of other gearbox systems out there. Um, but what I was really hoping for from Classified is their own take on an internal gearbox, an internal gearbox sort of thing, like kind of like what you have from... With multiple gears, not just like a Yeah, two. Like, sort of like, like the idea of like a roll-off or a pinion or something like that, but with the shifting speed and with presumably the greater efficiency that you get with that Classified design... Because I feel like mm-hmm. at that point, if you were able to get, you know, even like eight, nine, whatever gears out of something like that in a package that is ideally more efficient and lighter than what you get from roll-off and pinion, let's say they were able to pull that off. That, I feel like, is something that would actually move the needle as far as mountain bikes go. Um, because yeah. you do have these these really kind of progressive designs like um, Zeroed, which I think is, I think, are they out of New Zealand? Yep. Um, so like you have bikes like that that are built around gearbox drivetrains. And then in that way, you are able to get some real performance benefits. And then if you're able to get that sort of frame design and suspension design out of a gearbox, but with a gearbox that's lighter and more efficient and shifts faster, particularly under load, then at that point, that's something that we can all get really excited about. Um, because as good as this new SRAM quote unquote transmission uh, supposedly is, it is still a conventional rear derailleur. Um, and as good as it apparently works, I still am particularly more excited about the idea of gearboxes. And I'm really excited about this this super drive thing from, uh, is it LAL? L-A-L? Yeah. Um, I yep. think they're, are they Canadian or French? I can't remember now. French Canadian. Um, French Canadian, okay. But um, but like that design I feel like is also really interesting because it moves the it, – it basically takes sort of like half a derailleur and sticks it inside the rear triangle so it's totally shielded from everything. I mean that sort of wholesale redesign is something that I'm really excited about and that's kind of what I was hoping to see from Classified. I mean, maybe this is sort of a stopgap. Maybe that's still coming. But as it maybe. is right now, I'm not sure why someone would get this thing. Yep. Yep. I could see it potentially being useful in like – maybe a touring bike but that same argument applied to their previous system as well so this doesn't add anything new to that um yeah i still need to put a classified hub on a bike with a touring setup at the front and have double the gears um that's still something i need to play with that'd be fun all right well speaking of things that make more sense uh feedback sports has a new repair stand dave what are we looking at yeah, so I mean, last year they introduced their Pro Mechanic HD, which is like this overbuilt 
folding repair stand, which was designed to basically carry, uh, support everything, but including the heaviest of e-bikes. Uh, and it came with a, it was basically an entire redesign, a whole new model, but it came with a, a new clamp as well, which had uh, more clamping capacity. It had some cool features like a, a quick spinner on the front of it. Uh, it has that, that quick release button that if you hit the side of it, it, it opens the jaws up. Uh, and yeah, it had, I guess, all of the, the knobs on it were, were much easier to use and, and had more leverage. And what they've done is they've taken a lot of those features and they've now introduced them to a stand just called the Pro Mechanic, which actually replaces their, um, their, their Pro Elite stand, which uh, I guess anyone who's wrenched at races would have, uh, would have seen or anyone who's actually attended a professional mountain bike or cyclocross race in the last 15 years would have seen this stand a lot because it's the most commonly used work stand at those races. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's Feedback Sports top-end, lightweight, foldable, portable work stand has completely been revised. So yeah, it's predominantly the main feature update here is is seen at the clamp and at the top half of the stand. The the bottom half is is pretty much the same as old, but just with a new feet. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting one to me because the stand rocks, and I've still got an original Ultimate stand that is coming on twenty years old, and it's still great, and I can still fix it if I need to, and that's just a great product worth owning. That Ultimate stand is actually the first thing I ever bought at discount when I first started working at a shop. And mm. I really, really wish I still had it. I gave it to somebody because um, I somehow ended up with like a surplus of ultimate or not ultimate, but well, I somehow ended up with basically a, a surplus of feedback sports uh, repair stands because feedback bought ultimate, um, at least the bicycle portion of it anyway. Uh, and yeah, I wish I still had that thing because it was awesome. And now I feel like it's a piece of history that I'll never get back. I think I might know who I gave it to. I can't remember now, but... Yeah, a little, little Monday. My my ultimate stand has a bit of a story. I think I I think it was my fifteenth birthday present that I requested, and at the time <laughs> I was I was such a nerd that I was dealing <laughs> with some with a bike shop in the U.S. Uh, Mountain High Cyclery, which I think is actually not too far from you, James. I've never heard of it. Okay, so Colorado shop. I think it was called Mountain High Cyclery. And uh, I arranged that they would sell me the stand, but because it was such a bulky good, he ended up having a friend that was coming to Sydney, and and that friend who I can't remember the name of, unfortunately, was uh, actually flew with it for me on the plane and just like handed it to me in person. What? Um, yeah. So I mean, that's that's uh, yeah, that's the stand is well traveled and uh, is still kicking. I'm not sure what's more amazing here: the the process mm. that you went through to get this thing, or the fact that mm -hmm. what you wanted for your 15th birthday was an ultimate repair stand. I mean, what 15-year-old doesn't want one of those? Yeah. Clearly. D right? But good, better question, Dave, did you end up getting like the full accessory package with the like the the the, the little hanging toolbox that went on there and the, the trimming stand and everything? Uh, I oh, got mine with the tote stand. bag. And then uh, later at a later date, I bought the trimming stand and the tool tray. Uh, no, there was a, there the was a toolbox that still... went on there. I never got the toolbox, no. I have the toolbox. Mm. Mm. We may have to arrange yeah, no. a swap. <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, it's a solid product. Like it, I, I treat it like trash these days. It mostly sits outside and it, it actually still works the, just as well as it did all those years ago. I mean, so I'm, I'm sold on this product. My, my everyday stand is an old feedback sports stand. And this was from probably 15 years ago or so. They actually did 
unlimited edition, like something like 20 stands total that had mm. Rasta cover, oh, Rasta colored legs, like, like the red, yellow, and green editized legs. So I do have one of those. I This is one I will absolutely never, ever get rid of. Because, um, yeah, I think they really did only make like it 20 was very of them. Limited. So. I have no idea how I ended up with one of these, but I have one and it's amazing mm. and it still works great. I mean, I have one that's probably, I don't know, 10 plus years old at this point and I use it to wash bikes every single day and it's still is great. Yeah. Yeah. So needless to say, it's a product that all of us rate highly, but this new model, <laughs> this new model, yeah, has a new, enough interesting new things that uh, I've got one for review and I'm actually going to do a comparison against it and the newest uh, park tool, which are, are pretty closely comparable these days. So uh, I'm quite looking forward to getting stuck into that comparison. Excellent. There's going to be some interesting things from that. Cool. When uh, when can we expect to see that? Uh, when I finish it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dave. <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Well, with that very, very <laughs> vague, vague promise, I guess we'll move on. Um, our next bit of news, unfortunately, is definitely not super happy. Uh, I mean, Dave, this is this is unfortunately the sort of thing that you and I had, like have an awful lot of experience with over the last few months. Um, Jiro and Bell... Uh, very well-known helmet and apparel and sort of uh, accessory brands and stuff. Their entire brand creative and marketing teams were just recently laid off very suddenly for both companies, and they were replaced by the staff at Fox Racing. Uh, that's the, uh, not Fox Suspension, Fox Racing, uh, like the, the logo that you see with a little fox head on it. Um, it's the apparel and protective brand that parent company Vista Outdoor bought this past August. Um, so we've received word also that Vista is also planning to shut down, uh, the Giro and Bell facility in Scotts Valley, California. They've been there for God knows how long, but that, that facility is going to be shut down September 1st. Uh, and we've been told that any remaining staff have been asked to either commit to relocating six and a half hours South to Irvine, Southern California, uh, or resign. Um, and this has all apparently come about without any cost of living adjustment as well, because it is quite a bit more expensive to live in Irvine than it is in Scotts Valley. Um, this sounds real crappy. Uh, definitely lots of talks of synergies and that sort of thing. Um, this makes me not want to mm. buy Jiro stuff anymore. It's really a bummer, uh, like a huge, huge bummer, because from my understanding, it's about 30 or 40 people who have just been sacked. Uh, all at once, all very suddenly. Uh, a lot of these people, like some of them were, were on holidays. Some of them were, I know one in particular was like, you know, they were often like photo shoots that were like, they were in the middle of, 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 uh, of like marketing projects that they were, that they were assigned to do. Sea Otter is coming up here in the U S in just a couple of weeks. And, uh, I've been told that they don't even know if they're going to be going to that at all. They have, they always, Jira and Bell always have like a huge booth space reserved at, at Sea Otter. So I would imagine at this, this point that's already paid for. So I don't know what they're going to do there. Um, but this sounds like a huge mess because essentially what Vista has done is just decided to consolidate all of those functions into the, um, into the marketing and branding creative people at Fox. And I can see they how- They probably don't want that job either. Well, even if they don't, whether they do or don't want it, the thing is, there's, it, you know, the, those people at Giro and Bell, they have spent, some of them haven't spent decades building sort of the the identity and, and you know, kind of image and kind of the, I guess for lack of a better term, sort of the spirit of these brands. And I can totally understand how on paper it would make sense to consolidate those roles. Again, quote unquote synergies. Um, but... Uh, 
I have a hard time seeing this as anything other than a short-term gain because like long-term, there's just so much lost there. Yeah, it's very familiar for me. Um, How so, Dave? Oh, yeah. uh, no, nothing. No reason. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I might need to... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm sure if you gave me some time, I could sit outside and, and figure it out. But it just feels very familiar. But um, I would say that, yeah, it's it's just shitty all around. Uh, yeah, and like the severance packages were pretty, I guess, odd. Uh, they, they were offered apparently <clears throat> a week for each year that they're employed. So for some people, that'll be pretty decent. For an awful lot of other people, it just won't be very good. Um, and certainly here in the U.S., that's a, a much bigger deal because generally speaking, like unless you have some sort of severance package set up from your now former employer, like you don't get a whole lot. I mean, you do get some unemployment and whatnot, but anyway, those protections aren't really awesome here. Um, either way, this is super, super crummy news. Um, you know, we at Escape Collective, certainly like our hearts go out to everyone at Jerome Bell who has been laid off and let go. Um, we also have a lot of personal connections there and we, we know a bunch of people personally who have been let go. Um, and yeah, we wish all of you the best of luck because yeah, we know how that feels. Yeah. Not, not to stay on this for too long, but like what makes it all the more peculiar is that I'm, I'm hearing reports that they, the Scott, uh, sorry, not Scott, the, the Jiro and the, the Bell team are actually pretty, um, pretty profitable. Like they'd, they'd been getting good numbers and that, unlike some other businesses currently who had seen massive declines, I mean, they were still doing good things. So it just, yeah, as you say, James, it's just very short-term thinking from, from what I can see. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, obviously we are not privy to a whole lot of the sorts of decisions that companies like this would make. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure someone decided that it would make a lot of sense, but who knows? All right. Last segment of the show. I'm curious, Dave. Second last. Oh, that's right. Second to last. No, you're correct. Uh, what do you got in your mind, Dave? That might be over the heads of your family. Um, electric inflators, which is weirdly on my mind a lot. Um, uh, it doesn't seem weird to me at they're all, they're so Dave. noisy when you do use them. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm back testing them again. And I've got my hands on the Fumpa Nano, which is this tiny little cube that is a little, very cute air compressor. Uh, and... The copy version of it, which is a uh, Psych Plus, which is a Chinese copy, uh, who have managed to carefully skirt around the patents of Fumpa uh, and actually create a pretty good product. Um, but yeah, I'm testing those. I'll have the review done pretty soon of those. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting little battle of tiny little portable electric air items, which are designed to replace a mini pump or CO2 and be rechargeable fast to use no effort uh and unlike co2 if you accidentally have a leak at your valve you don't end up wasting your cartridge uh so they're interesting um that said uh i think there will be a winner in the battle but uh i i think fundamentally i'll still continue to carry co2 instead of one of these <laughs> are you only testing so. portable ones or also testing like the mechanic ones uh, right now, I'm only testing these tiny little handheld ones, which are like uh, roughly around 100 grams each and probably the size of like a Tuberlito tube, like even smaller than a regular butyl folded tube. So oh, they're little. very, very small, um, very unique little product. Um, but yeah, they, they uh, like the Fumper, for example, can inflate. Uh, yesterday, I inflated a 28 mil 700C road tire 
twice to 80 PSI and then again to 55 PSI before it cut out, run out of battery. So, I mean, they're pretty pretty capable for the size. They, they pack, a, pack a punch. Huh. Okay, I'm intrigued. I'm looking forward to that one, Dave, I will honestly say. Mm. Yeah. Mm. James, what's on your mind? Uh, I've actually been thinking a lot about cable drivetrains lately, uh, mainly because... I mean, I never used to think of myself as a Luddite, and I still don't think of myself as a Luddite necessarily, but, um, you know, people who know me reasonably well know that I have an affinity for cable drivetrains. Just maybe it's from old school mechanic days or whatnot. Um, but just the other day, I was on my trail bike, and I still run XTR 12-speed cable drivetrain on that thing, and works great. And uh, I signed up for the uh, three-day, this time, Breck Epic. Uh, it's a big high alpine uh kind of like all day endurance mountain bike event uh up in breckenridge colorado and i'm just kind of getting around to figure out what i'm actually going to ride for that thing um and when it comes to drivetrain stuff i mean i probably could go with an electronic setup but i kind of want to go with something that i could potentially fix when i'm out in the middle of nowhere at twelve thousand feet but anyway um I'm I'm a little worried that a lot of the attention, particularly at the performance end of things, is going to be exclusively on electronic, and that certainly is where uh, where SRAM is going anyway. Uh, remains to be seen where Shimano is going with that. Um, but uh, I will say I'm I'm really like we mentioned this on on a, a, what episode four weeks ago or something like that. Um, that introduction of Shimano Qs, that lower end drivetrain. And um, I actually just put in my request for a test group set. I don't know when those things are going to be available, but I really want to see how that thing is because if it is what I'm hoping it is, it, I mean, it's, it ideally is just going to bring really good levels of performance at a really, really attainable price point. And that particularly for me is what I'm getting, what, what I'm more excited about. It's going to be heavy to log up Wheeler Pass though. I didn't say I was going to use cues at, at Break Epic. Okay. But, <laughs> but I am I do want to test. I mean, maybe I'll use it there. I don't know. But um, but I do want to bring it in to test regardless. Mm, yeah, I I think it's a, a very, very interesting new product. Um and relevant to the vast majority of people riding bikes in the world. So yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm so I, I agree. The 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 general attention to electronic drivetrains is is frustrating and unfortunately it's it's almost necessary the way frame designs are going which is a whole different debate but uh yeah the way the cables are now being hidden in internally and directed through handlebars i mean you kind of have to have electronics for a bike to function well with those systems but you don't have to have the internal routing you have to no No, sorry i'm not saying you have to have internal routing i'm saying (laughs) if your bike has internal routing you then almost have to have electronic shifting to have a functioning bike i I guess that's my point there's a way there are ways around that like we're we're solving problems that have been created with other problems anyway yeah no exactly yeah yeah yeah. it's all a solution to new problems stay stay tuned i i dare say i may have something in written form to say about that so okay so anyway uh zach what do you have on your mind it's kind of similar to you Oh, how so? I recently built up myself a new XC bike. Oh. Ooh. And I built it up with SRAM Axis Eagle stuff. Uh-huh. Not the latest stuff because I wanted a bike ready for the season and I wasn't planning on new group sets being released in April or whatever. And my previous XC bike had SRAM Eagle mechanical shifting and I kind of miss it. I think the electronic stuff, there's like noticeably more hesitation when you shift. Yep. Like where the mechanical, you can kind of just slam it into gear and mm-hmm. like rattle off a couple of shifts where the, the electronic stuff, it kind of 
like you have to ease up pedaling just that slight amount, which I found annoying. Uh, I I find eagle previous eagle uh, axis would like I wouldn't know when to time my shift. Like with mechanical, exactly. you can kind of time the way you're pedaling with the feel through the shifter and know exactly when that chain is going to jump to the next cog. With eagle axis, I was kind of always like almost guessing it, almost being surprised at when the shift actually happened. Right. And which, um, yeah. Which is interesting because I have the same like derailleur and cassette on my gravel bike and I don't notice it yep. for that. But on a mountain bike where you're just like constantly accelerating, mm-hmm. going up and down little punchy climbs, like yep. I've noticed it and I kind of miss my mechanical shifting. Yeah. So yeah, I'd, I'd say that's that's one area where new transmission is better for me because it it didn't have that weird lag and it it's sort of it's so good under power that you know if you hit the button it's just going to get into that gear. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's it's but an odd for me one too. Because, it's like yeah. the mechanical stuff is still lighter, so that makes me kind of want it even more. Yeah. Yeah. Lighter, more fixable. So yeah, I mean certainly there's there's merit to high-end mechanical stuff i mean my my own trail bike has xtr mechanical and i treated it like trash on sunday by riding it in the rain for six hours and it actually functioned flawlessly so uh when that stuff set up well it it, it's very very good yeah Um, yeah i'm not trying to be like super grumpy old mechanic in the back or whatever but like it's just a very interesting observation that because i hadn't ridden that stuff on a actual mountain bike on proper rides and it was very mm-hmm. noticeable on the first couple rides where it's like, oh, this kind of hesitates a little bit. Well, and, and even just from a, a cost standpoint, um, I mean, Dave, I know you've written obviously extensively about the the new SRAM um, XXSL and like whatever uh, the other the other two versions of their new transmission. Yeah. Um, but all three versions of that are awfully expensive. Um, and on my mm-hmm. wife's trail bike, I set her up with, uh, with uh, mechanical SRAM X01. It's great. It does work really well. Um, and I have to say one of the first thoughts that um, – one of the first thoughts I had after uh, seeing all the news about the, SRAM, the new SRAM stuff, I, I'm honestly really curious if SRAM will come out with a, uh, a direct mount sort of UDH version of their mechanical stuff. I think you know the answer to that. I mean, mm. I'm guessing it has to be yes. I'm guessing it's a no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well – I mean, there's there's so many rumors of coming out with Apex access stuff. Oh, that's true. Like they're not gonna yeah, all true. of a sudden make new mechanical that's stuff. True. For I mean, SRAM is all in on electronic, but yeah. I mean, I guess I'm just saying for me. Oh well, yeah, like, you would given, like that product given the given the purported advantages of that style of of derailleur attachment. All of those merits would carry over to a mechanical system, and it would not only make that system more durable, in my point of view, but it would also would make the shifting potentially better also in my yep. point of view. Um, so from a functional standpoint, I don't see any particular reason why it would be a bad idea to bring that over to their mechanical stuff. But I can see how from like a, I guess, marketing or business development sort of point of view that they would want to keep that exclusive to their high-end uh, electronic stuff. If And if yeah, that's the I mean, case, that would bum me out a little bit. I, I kind of see SRAM as almost becoming like an electronics-only company, which is... Well, I think that's pretty clear that that's almost, where, where they're going. Almost bizarre to consider. But yeah, it's it's certainly interesting. And I think that direct mount concept uh, for mechanical may be better served by some other company. Uh, I know there's a patent floating around from TRP, for example. I know there's another one from Shimano. So, 
I mean, other drivetrain manufacturers are absolutely looking at how to implement that that UDH hanger and and direct mount frame. So I think it's definitely going to be a very interesting space. Uh, I I stick to what I'd previously said in my review, where that interface and the way of mounting a derailleur in that way is a game changer. Uh, and I think it it will continuously become more uh, more common and and eventually the the standard way of mounting a derailleur. Indeed. Well, yeah, interesting times for mountain bike drivetrains for sure. All right, Dave, we're getting a little long here. Let's move on here. What do we yeah, have left? You've got a, I think we've got, yeah, let's wrap things up. I think you've got a PSA for everyone, James. I do have a PSA, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty quick one. Um, despite the fact that we have dumping snow outside right now, it is springtime in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, for a lot of people who are, who I guess experience actual winter, uh, their bikes may be coming out of hibernation right now as you sort of anticipate the warmer days of spring and summer. And if you are running tubeless tires, uh, this is your friendly reminder to check the sealant in those tubeless tires because if it's been hanging up all winter, there's a good chance that either the sealant is dried up or it's sort of just maybe partially congealed into one spot on your tire inside. And it's a good idea to kind of just scoop all that out and replace it with fresh stuff because otherwise your tires won't seal and otherwise your tires may be imbalanced and that actually is noticeable when you're riding particularly at higher road speeds. I don't know why, but for, for some reason the way you just described that, I, I could only imagine like a like filling uh, a bear with tubeless sealant. Filling the a way you, bear with tubeless sealant? Yeah, I don't know. Is just because the, I said the idea of, 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 of a bike hibernating in, in winter <laughs> and then awaking and I don't know. Um, I mean, my bike's definitely hibernated for the winter. Concept. Just get hung up in November and come out in mm, March. And then, then the skis come out and <laughs> yeah. then the bikes come back out in March. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's just not a Southern Hemisphere thing. So, um, Well, I mean, winter oh, is a Southern is. Hemisphere thing, just not where you are in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm sure I'll get lots of people telling me they they hibernate their their bikes in winter. So I'm, I, I don't doubt it happens. I will just be quiet now. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that is my friendly reminder for this week's show. And with that, we'll go ahead and close out this week's episode of Geek Warning. Uh, thanks for listening as always. And I know that we did a big old self-promo at the beginning of this episode, but just as a reminder, Escape Collective is member funded. So if you like mm -hmm. what you heard today, uh, if you like what you read on the site and you want to read more, you haven't become a member yet, please consider doing so because that is how this whole thing is funded. Like we do work for you. So, yep. uh, yeah. And if go. you've got feedback, become a member so you can give it to us. Yes. And you can go <laughs> ahead and yell at us personally and we will respond to you. So feel free. All right. Well, that is all we've got for you this week. Make sure you tune in next week if you are a member and if you are, or if you're thinking about being a member. Again, next week's Geek Warning episode is going to be a live recording where you'll be, uh, you'll have the ability to ask us questions in real time and we'll get back to you in real time. Uh, so yeah, go ahead and sign in next week. But in the meantime, we will see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Bye.